Father, thank you for today. Thank you for everything that you are doing in our hearts. Thank you for the ability to worship together uh, wherever we are, that we can enjoy your presence. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we walk through the word today that you would just open our hearts, uh, that your Holy Spirit would come in whatever place we are, and that your word would transform and cut deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Colossians chapter one, verses one to eight. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Good morning, church. Today we are starting a new series in the book of Colossians, which I'm really uh, excited for us to be able to go through, has some just really powerful theology, Christology, understanding of Jesus in here that I think will be really impactful during uh, uh, this time for us to unpack and walk through together. Uh, so Colossians is written by uh, Paul the Apostle, and he writes this book from jail. Uh, we're not sure where he is when he writes it. Uh, most likely the two uh, places that he uh, wrote this from uh, would be either from a Roman jail uh, or from an Ephesian jail. Uh, in Ephesus. So, uh, but we do know that he is in jail uh, when he's writing this. And the main reason why he's writing the book of Colossians is to help mature this new church that has formed in the city of Colossae uh, and to combat some heresy that was trying to take root uh, in that church. Uh, so let's jump in. We see right in the very intro here, um, that we will go over. It, it sets in the first two verses our place, our author, and our audience kind of getting the setting of this book that will be important for us to understand as we continue to, to drive through the book. So Colossians 1 verses 1 to 2 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Uh, so First of all, this, uh, this book is written by Paul, but it's from Paul and Timothy, one of his servants. If you've read through the New, Tim uh, the New Testament, then uh, Timothy should be a familiar figure to you. Most people have heard of Paul, whether you've read through the Bible or not, but he is one of the uh, main apostles and has written a large chunk of the New Testament with his epistles or his letters to the churches. Um, and so this is one of his letters to the church at Colossae. Uh, and Colossae is in the southwestern portion of modern-day Turkey. Uh, there's no actual people living there today, but you can go visit the ruins uh, of that city. It was um, 
uh, you know, in the Roman Empire at the time that Paul was writing to it, uh, but mainly filled with Greeks, uh, some population of Jews, um, and it was a city, you know, an urban center. It wasn't a huge city like Rome uh, or Antioch, but it was a city nonetheless. And so in this city, the gospel had uh, recently uh, taken root. Uh, and when Paul introduces himself as an apostle. The word apostle really uh, means messenger or architect. Uh, And this was a title given to a few people. uh, And we actually read in Matthew 10, we were going through that series, how the 12 disciples are the 12, turn into the 12 apostles when Jesus sends them out to go spread the news of the kingdom of God, to heal the sick, to cast out uh, demons, and to tell them about the kingdom of God. And so Paul becomes an apostle, as he says it in uh, other places, an apostle to the Gentiles, uh, where he, he, in every city that he goes to, he finds the synagogue, if there is one, he preaches there, usually gets rejected, kicked out, beaten, something of that matter, uh, and then he'll go preach to the Gentiles. Um, and whoever receives the word, he will effectively plant a church uh, in that place, in that region, just like Zion was planted a few years ago in Bay Ridge, so that the gospel could go out uh, to more people. But when Paul says uh, he is an apostle by the will of God, uh, essentially he is saying that he is where he is, he does what he does by the grace of God, uh, which is a stark contrast. You know, if you think of uh, Paul being an apostle, he's, he's literally one of the pillars of the early church. Because of Paul, the gospel reaches all around the Mediterranean, from all the way from Antioch uh, to most likely Spain, but definitely uh, through different parts of the Roman Empire, Greece. Uh, and we read about his travels and his cities. And so because of him, it is spread and he is Apostle, uh, capital A, this, this title that uh, in the early church some uh, were given uh, in order to be established in pillars uh, in the church. And, but he is saying he has only gotten to this place by God's grace. That's what it means when he says that he is here by the will of God. This is not uh, like today's day and age where you meet a CEO and usually that CEO uh, will tell you about how they got to where they are by their intelligence and hard work um, or uh, and a little bit of luck. I would say that is the formula that most CEOs will tell you that uh, they've gotten to where they've gotten. Uh, but Paul is saying that it's, it's not luck, it's not hard work, uh, it's not intelligence. None of these reasons are why he got to where he was. It is by the will of God. He is apostle by God's grace and God's sovereignty, not because he was so amazing and so gifted, but because God called him to be where he was. Um, And uh, that's just a a beautiful thing to remind her that no matter uh, what we do, no matter how good the world may see us, no matter how successful we may be, to stay in this humble posture that Paul does right in the beginning as he introduces himself with his accolade of apostle, that this is by uh, the will of God. Um, And so the, the church that Paul describes in the city of Colossae, he describes them as faithful brothers and sisters which right off the bat tells you that they love God, that they've been growing uh, well in Christ as a newly formed community in Jesus. Uh, And what we know from this church is 
They were most likely almost all Gentile uh, believers, which happened in many places that Paul would go to where uh, the Jewish population, just as they rejected Jesus, would reject the gospel. And so uh, as was prophesied in time in the Old Testament over and over again, that the the message God's people would no longer stay within just Israel, but it would be all peoples all over the earth and that time had come. And so the people of Colossae had received the gospel. They received it and faithfully began to practice it, believe it, walk it out. Uh, And that is kind of our setting for where we are now and the, the setting for Paul's letter that will help shape our understanding of what Paul is saying and what he's trying to Uh, communicate to the church. And so starting in verse three, we get into the letter. Uh, What is kind of jumping into what Paul is going to get at? And so verses three, four, and five, we'll read that uh, as we jump into the body of this letter. He says, Paul says, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul starts off the letter with thanksgiving and that really is the theme of this first section that we're going over. Uh, And that makes sense because Paul opens up the letter saying that they are faithful, faithful to believe Jesus Christ. So it makes sense on why he would open up with thanksgiving, uh, thanksgiving, noting that they are doing well, that they're walking well with Christ. But Paul's thanksgiving is not just a courtesy. It's not just, you know, like something that we do where we always ask, like, how are, you, how are you doing? Where we don't really care how somebody's doing, right? We're just kind of opening up a conversation of small talk. Paul was not just thank, uh, opening up a Thanksgiving for the sake of opening up in Thanksgiving. In fact, you read other letters where Paul is not thankful <laughs> for the church's walk with God, and he says it straight away. So there is actually a, a reason why he is thankful uh, here in his prayer posture. He is Um, It it is his prayer posture towards the church, a prayer of thanksgiving for them, where he says literally that he's praying always for them. And what that means is uh, in in a kind of Jewish custom of prayer that Paul would practice is they prayed uh, most likely for three hours every day. It was an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon, and an hour at night. So what Paul is saying is during all of his prayer time, Every morning, every afternoon, and every night when he comes before God and he prays and he's praying most likely with the other saints, it says that we are thanking God when we pray always for you, that he is naming this church uh, by name, he's saying, and he is thanking God for what is happening in their community. He's thanking God for what has happened in them and he is praying for them from a posture of thankfulness for what has happened. And so this means that when Paul is praying morning, afternoon, and evening, that the Colossian church was on his heart, was on his lips, and he was thanking God for them. But what made Paul so thankful? What made Paul so thankful? What can we look to uh, at the Colossian church? Have you ever had something that you just thank God for all the time? Uh, you know, and it's usually something that you are excited about, something that you are happy about. Uh, you know, and I know Christmas uh, and Thanksgiving is coming up uh, where we actually have a time of, of, of 
you know, corporate thanksgiving as a people. And, and what do we thank God about? We thank God for the things that have really sustained us, the things that, uh, that bring us joy when we think about them, the things that uh, make us happy, uh, uh, the things that um, we are just, you know, overall, like, thankful that this is in my life, that I've heard this news, whatever. And so uh, this is the thing that Paul's thankful for. What, what is it that gets him so excited, so happy, so joyful that every single day, three times a day, that he is naming this church because he is so thankful for them. Well, it names two things Paul says, that he is thankful for the Lord, for them. He is thankful for their faith in Jesus, and he is thankful for their acts of love towards one another. Paul says that these two things, faith and love, happen because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. So they have this faith in Jesus Christ that Paul is thankful for, and they have this love towards one another, these acts of love that they are walking out towards each other. And the scripture says that these two things came up because of the hope that was laid up for them in heaven. Another way of explaining this is that their faith, the community, this, this church, this community, their faith and their love sprang up from their hope that they received. And so if their their faith and their love, you got to think about this is a this is a pagan community. This is a community that did not believe in God and they weren't like Jews that had a foundation and understanding of God's character and who God was. This is a community of Gentiles. So what what was it? What is it about hope that when they heard this uh, a message of hope that out of that hope sprang forth a faith in Jesus, a faithfulness to Jesus, a faith in, a belief in who Jesus was, what he did, what we believe as Christians, and not only that, but a transformation of their life where now they actually started acting differently towards each other. They were loving towards each other. They, they actually started walking out in good deeds towards each other. What is a hope ultimately, that could produce such a faith and a love that would cause Paul, the apostle, to have a posture of continual thanksgiving for this community where, well, what we understand from Scripture is there's actually a lot to hope for in Scripture. There's a lot of hope that is given, and, and Christian hope that was offered to this pagan community, that was offered to these Gentiles, is not a hope of something that we wish will happen. See, Christian hope is very different from hope that we usually see in the world. Christian hope is an eager expectation of what will happen. Hope is not wishful. Hope is not if. Hope is when. Hope is an eager expectation for every Christian of what will happen in the future. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, it says salvation will come. This is a hope that is laid up for us. It says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 5, that righteousness will come. This is a hope that is laid up for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 52 to 55, it says that we will be resurrected in incorruptible bodies. This is a hope laid up for us in the future. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2, it says eternal life will come, that eternal life is a hope that will come, that we can eagerly expect. In Romans chapter 5, verse 2, my favorite, says our hope, our eager expectation is the glory of God. 
This is the hope that will come. This is how Paul defines the hope of Christians in the future. This is how he defines it in other letters that he's written to other people and other churches, that we have Christian hope that is not an empty promise, but a waiting for the promise. It is a waiting for something that we know will come in the future. The promise from the one that cannot lie. The promise from the everlasting faithful one, as scripture describes him. The promise of the glory of God. The promise of righteousness. The promise of salvation. The promise of eternal life. And of our new bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. This is Christian hope. This is Christian hope. That is not if, this is Christian hope that is not determined by an emotional state, is not determined by anything, but is anchored in the faithfulness and promises of the God that we serve. See, Paul often talks about these three words, faith, love, and hope. And he often talks about them in his letters, but when he talks about faith, love, and hope, What he does is he usually refers to these three things that they spring forth from the gospel, that when the gospel comes and enters into our life as a community or into our city, that the fruit of the gospel should be these three things, faith, hope, and love. But here we see a a different formula that Paul is using, and what he's saying is that faith and love actually sprang up from hope. And we get a clue as to why Paul is saying this if we kind of skip to verse 23 where Paul says the hope of the gospel. And so the gospel, when it came and was preached to the church in Colossae, um, what happened was it was a, a gospel of hope that was preached to this city. That when it was preached to these Gentiles, when it was preached in the city, that when it came and entered into this region for the first time, it was the gospel of hope. It was the good news that they received. The good news that they received was their future. It was their future did not hang on a wish or the emotional state of the gods, right? It wasn't how Jupiter was feeling that day, whether they got their sacrifices right or not, or whether, you know, he had a, he, he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It, it wasn't whether uh, the pantheon, how they were squabbling with each other and who was going to win and lose, which in their mind... Their future hope was unstable because the promise of their future wasn't really a promise. It was dependent on these unstable, unfaithful gods, and it was dependent on how well they could measure up to these standards that they weren't actually 100% sure on. And so here comes the gospel that actually gives them a firm foundation for their hope that says, no, hope is not something that is wishful thinking in the future. We actually have a hope that is an eager expectation for our future that will happen. And so the gospel, the good news comes with a hope for their future that is secure. For us, that means a hope for our future that is also secure, that is not dependent on our strength, that is not dependent on our intellect, that is not dependent on our job performance, it is not dependent on our ability to craft a good resume. 
It hangs on the balance of the truthfulness of the one who spoke it, of the eternal God, who scripture says cannot lie. And so our hope actually is anchored in a much deeper, much rooted place than hope in anything else in the world, right? If, if hope is anchored on my job performance, and so therefore my security, my future, my well-being, my children, my housing, all of these things are anchored on my job performance, but let's say I get sick. And I can no longer perform my job to the abilities that I used to perform it. Well, then what happens to my hope if my job performance is now suffering? Well, my hope dissipates along with my job performance because my job performance is not eternal security. But yet, if now my hope is not anchored in something that has to do with human frailty, with human sickness, with human ability like my strength, like my ability to be mentally sharp at all times, like my personal wisdom, which has failed me many times, well then if my hope is not anchored in something that can fail, and instead it is anchored in an eternal being who never lies, then what happens with my hope? That no matter what situation I have, no matter what the surrounding circumstances of my life, my hope still stands firm and is still anchored because it is not anchored in something that can fail. It is anchored in something that is eternal. It is anchored in something, in a being, in God the Father, who cannot lie, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who his promises are yes and amen, that when our hope is anchored in that, it doesn't matter what circumstances are around me, it doesn't matter how I fail, it doesn't matter what my strength is, my job is, my intellect is, my wisdom is, it doesn't matter any of that, my hope is stable and secure in God because God is stable and secure. And so when the gospel came to the city, their hope was radically shifted from an insecure, unstable, emotional state of the gods and human ability to the eternal, everlasting, alpha and omega, God the Father, who is stable and secure. And this was good news to them knowing that it wasn't their performance, it wasn't uh, their religiosity, it wasn't their ability to follow in the emotional whims of the gods and try to figure it out by, the, by you know, whether casting rocks down or getting the, you know, the intestines of a, of a goat or a pig and trying to figure out what it means. Their hope wasn't in these things that could constantly fail them, constantly slip away, constantly shift at the blowing of the wind. It was actually, could be in something that was eternal, stable, and anchored and rooted well, not in their own abilities, but in the character of a God who does not change. When I think of that hope, if I'm them and I'm hearing this now, that is something that I want to put my future in. And that is something that the Colossians, when they heard the hope of the gospel, said, yeah, we are going to put our hope in that. We receive this good news and the hope that comes with it. And so in the rest of the verses, in verses 5 to 8, we get a glimpse of what happened when the hope of the gospel was shared with them, that when the hope of the gospel came out of that sprang forth this faith, out of that sprang forth these acts of love. We read this in the rest of verse 5. Of this you have heard before 
and the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to you made known to us your love in the Spirit. So what happened here is this church, they heard the word of truth, which is another way of saying the gospel. They heard the word of truth. Again, if you think about the hope of the gospel that you heard and this understanding of it being the word of truth, meaning it, this is truth. This is not something that will ever change. Their hope is anchored. It is strong. It is Firm, it is on a great foundation. They heard the word of truth. They heard the word of truth about their future. They heard the word of truth about their sinfulness and about God's goodness. They heard the word of truth of the cross and the resurrection. They heard the word of truth of their future hope, of their eternal home in a righteous state before a glorious God. They heard the truth about all of these things. And when they heard this, Paul says the gospel did what it does. It bore fruit. Right? The gospel, we know, has its own power working within it. The gospel is something that when it's spoken into the air by whoever would speak it, Paul even said it somewhere else that even if enemies are speaking it, it doesn't matter as long as they are speaking the gospel because the gospel in itself, when spoken correctly, has its own power that it goes out into the air, into the ears of the believing, of the believer, of a person, and it begins to do the work of transformation. It is not the power of me or you. It is not in the power of the order. Again, it is not me hoping that you get saved, and I'm not putting my hope in your salvation on whether I speak well the gospel or not, or I share it properly. I'm putting my hope in the power of the gospel because God said it is the gospel that has the power unto salvation in Romans 1.16. And so the gospel, when it goes forth, what does it do? What did it do in the city at Colossae. What does it do for me and you today? Well, it bears fruit. Paul says it's not only bearing fruit in your city, but it did what it has done throughout the entire world. It has been bearing fruit throughout the entire world. It is going out to every place that it has gone out, to every place that Paul has gone. It is bearing fruit just like it is bearing fruit in the city, just like it is bearing fruit in you and me today, just like it is bearing fruit in New York City, that as we faithfully proclaim it, the gospel has power working unto it. And we learn here that Paul wasn't even the one to go preach in the city of Colossae. That it was Epaphras, who was a native of that city, who was the first one to bring the gospel to them. That when he went and preached, he knew what that city needed. He knew what that people needed. And so when he went to them, he preached the gospel of hope. Paul hasn't even met these people yet. But word got back to him about what the gospel did in that city. I love how Paul describes it, how it came to him. He says, 
He says that he heard that the gospel has come to you. And what that means here is he is describing a moment that will forever be marked in that city's history, in their lives, in that community's history. Just like our calendars are split in two by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus, that our calendars will forever be marked by the birth of Jesus, that it is a time before Jesus came and the time that after Jesus came, just like history is forever split in two, Jesus... Right, Paul is saying here that when the gospel comes to you, it forever marks your life as a time before you heard the gospel and a time after you heard the gospel. That when it comes to you, he, he's personifying it. He's giving the, the, the gospel a character. He's saying when it, when it comes to you, just like a, a person comes to you, that it forever marks, it splits your time. That we now think about our lives of our times before Jesus, our times before we heard the gospel, and after that. And when Epaphras came back to Paul and reports what happens, he tells Paul of this, of their love in the Spirit. The hope of the gospel, the word of truth, and the power it has working in it hit them so hard that it changed everything about them. It changed how they acted. Right? What's that saying? Don't show me your words, show me your actions. That's when I know uh, you truly mean what you're saying. It, words are cheap, right? It's actions that we really want to see. So they didn't just confess with their mouths. But they actually believed, and we know that they believed because they started walking in love towards one another. And, and the love that Paul describes is not the kind of hippie love that we talk about nowadays, which is emotional and let's just all hug each other and get goosebumps and feel nice about each other. No, the, the love that is talked about in scripture that Paul constantly references when he talks about faith, hope, and love is a actionable love. It is walking out good deeds towards one another. It is love that says, I don't have to get my way anymore when we argue or we have a, dis a disagreement. Is it a love that says, when you're annoying me, I'm going to be patient with you now, and I'm not going to get frustrated and just scream at you, that, that there's actually something in me that says, you know what, I, I can have patience with my brothers and my sisters instead of snapping back constantly. It is a love that truly changes our, that is characterized by changed behavior towards one another. So Paul says here that they, they, he heard of their love in the Spirit. Right? We know that love is always defined in the New Testament in terms of good deeds that spring forth from the good news of Jesus. The gospel came to those in that city and it radically changed their life but it radically changed their life. And then through the power of the Spirit, through the power of the Holy Ghost, they now walked out good works towards each other and news spread to Paul of what God was doing there. The truth about their hopeful future forever marked in their life, a before time and an after time. And after it was how they lived completely differently than they lived before. See, the question that I have for us today is this. 
Has the hope of the gospel marked you similarly? Do you believe the truth of the future that God has for you? Because if you believed in that truth, are you still hopeful for the future, the future of this earth, the future of humanity, the future of yourself, of me and you, the future of the church? Has the hope of the gospel marked you similarly? I don't know what was going on in the city of Colossae at that time, where when Epaphras went to his home city and preached, he knew that they needed the hope of the gospel. He knew that they needed hope more than anything else. I don't know what was happening there that made him make that decision, but I do know that today, that in our city, in New York City, in our time right now, it is the hope of the gospel that we need more than anything else. See, many of us probably feel like Habakkuk when he said these words and he cried out to God and he said this, he said, why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. All right, we may feel like that, and we may feel our hope diminishing as Habakkuk felt it then, as the people in Colossae felt as they put their hope in the wrong places. But the hope of the gospel, the word of truth is this, that God reminds Habakkuk, reminds us today, and has been reminding his people for generations that no matter what president gets elected, Jesus still sits on the throne and nothing will ever change that. As we go to the, vote, to the polls and we vote, and hopefully we will find out this next week who our president will be, guess what? It doesn't matter who is picked. Jesus still sits on the throne and he will way after this country even exists. No matter what it looks like, justice and judgment will be brought on all evil. It doesn't matter how perverted our time looks. It doesn't matter what the court system looks like. It doesn't matter what justice in the eyes of men and women look like today. Guess what? Justice from God will be brought on every single system, nation, person, people group, and city. God will not have it any other way. And the hope of the gospel is this, and no matter how evil we have been, when we call out on the name of the Lord, he will cover us on that day of wrath. We will stand before him in robes of righteousness, and we will behold his glory. That when judgment is poured out all around us, that he will be our strong tower, that he will be our refuge, that he will be our shelter. And that is a hope that we can anchor in today. That as we look around us and we see how our society has put its hope in all these things that will constantly fail them, we know that we have the hope of the gospel. The hope of an eternal life with a righteous God in the new heavens and the new earth and new bodies 
where we can behold the full glory of God. That is a hope that no one can take away. That is an eager expectation that will happen in our future. That is a hope that will never fail, that no matter what happens on earth, the hope of God's righteousness, the hope of God's judgment, the hope of God's salvation are hopes that will never leave us, are hopes that will never fail us, are hopes that are promises and will happen in our future. Pray with me. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for how it changed the city in Colossae. And we pray, Lord, change the city of New York City. Change the city of New York with the hope of the gospel. Father, that we would not only be faithful to proclaim it, but that we would be faithful to believe it. That as we proclaim it right now, God, that faith in Jesus and that love towards one another would spring up from the hope of the gospel just as it sprang up in the city of Colossae and Paul was thankful for seeing and hearing reports that there would be reports of the city of New York and the hope of the gospel and from it the springing up of the faith and love towards one another that would go around all the surrounding regions. Because, Father, we know that you are faithful. And we know that the gospel has power at work beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension, to soften the hardest of hearts, to make the hardest of people like new. We know it is the power unto salvation. And so, Father, I pray right now that the hope of the gospel would penetrate our city, would penetrate our hearts, our own heart, that if we, your righteous, stand like Habakkuk and, and start to look around and become unhopeful, that we would re be reminded of your character and your eternalness. Lord, and as the people around us, Lord, lose hope in the political systems, in their leadership, in their government, in their jobs, in their frailty, Father, that we would offer a better hope, a greater hope, Lord, an unfailing hope for their future with the good news of Jesus Christ and the eternal king, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the righteous judge who will cover us in his blood, who will wash us clean and allow no iniquity to stand unpunished. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.